Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Cult Leader early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. cult leader i'm your cult leader spencer henry and i've got a party story for you guys today we've we've talked about it before what's a party story what's a party story a party story is when i tell you a story that is a story that i would probably tell at a party if i was cornering people and just needed to (laughs) tell them something crazy that happened this is like a first date story this is like you go on a date they're like oh what are you into and you're like oh you know i I like true crime blah blah blah. and they're like oh really what's something crazy you've heard and you're like you fucking bust this out of your back pocket like all of a sudden the music in the bar plays and you're like it's december of 1986 before i forget don't forget to follow along online at cool leader podcast if you want to see pictures and get episode updates and all of that good stuff also subscribe to obituary on patreon patreon.com slash cult leader now like i was saying right it's a party story it's a story that you i the reason i say that it sounds insensitive i know we're talking about something very serious but what i mean by that is it's a story where you quickly become familiar with the details because they are so outlandish when i first heard about this story i texted i read i watched i listened anything that i could find on this case because it's so interesting to me i just feel like it's a very cult casual cult leader let's relax okay if you're in the drive if you're on your way to work let's just let's zone out these next 20 something minutes probably and just let me tell you what happened i looked up the name today's story takes place in townsend massachusetts and i looked up how to pronounce it because i don't want to hear it most of the time you guys are so nice and you're like you're like, oh, it's actually this. It's actually said like this, which great. I want to learn. But every once in a while, I'll get like a bad review or I'll get like a shitty email that's just like, I found it. I found it really hard to follow. I I just, he mispronounced that or he said this instead of this. I just, 
it's really hard to follow. Yeah, I don't care. I, I don't. I don't care. I appreciate reviews. I ask I ask for reviews because they help. But like I just am not the type to leave a shitty comment or anything ever. I'm not mad. I sound mad. I'm mad. I'm not mad. I'm mad at this story. This story's fucking crazy, you guys. Okay, so I I like where do I start? I we'll start at the beginning of the story. It's fall of 1986, right? The Andrews family consists of the dad, Brian, his two daughters, there's Annie, who is 15 years old, and Jessica, who sometimes is referred to as Jesse, eight years old. So it's the three of them. Unfortunately, they lose their mom, Brian's wife, Deborah Andrew, who passed away from cancer obviously super sad super hard on the family the dad brian was a bus driver he was gone a lot during the day the the kids were like what you would call latchkey kids which you know your parents work so you're kind of you come home you make your tv dinner watch whatever you want to watch so a lot of times the, the girls were at home by themselves the dad obviously did what he could but brian like i said he's a bus driver he's working he's gone a lot now annie was your typical 15 year old I mean obviously this is a huge loss for the family that's super hard as a teenage girl to you know lose your mom at such a young age and I've I've seen that with my own siblings I know that feeling all too well it's super sad but one day she receives a phone call to the house phone and it's from this kid named Danny Danny it never really says how he got the number to the house there's a lot of different theories which we'll kind of go through and unpack later on but essentially the story is He got the number to this house some way, somehow. He calls the house one day. The girls are at home alone. Annie, the 15-year-old, picks up the phone, and they just start talking. The story really starts with a phone call. I mean, come on. As a teenager, that's so exciting. They start talking, and I think he says he got her number from a friend, and the two just hit it off right away. She vents about life. They just spend hours over the next couple of weeks just chatting about what they like to do. Well, they haven't met yet, so what they look like. And Danny describes himself as this tall, blonde, athletic kid talking talks about how he plays football, he's pretty good at it, maybe he'll go pro one day. And though I don't think he ever said it blatantly, he definitely infers that he is a good-looking kid. Eventually, he builds up the courage to ask Annie out after several of these phone calls, inviting her to accompany him to the local fair, and she agrees. I'm sure just excited to finally meet her phone crush in person. I have like a funny story that it feels so inappropriate to say, but I'm just gonna say it. When I was like, probably 15 i too (laughs) got a phone call from an anonymous stranger i'm not gonna tell the context of how he got my number because it was (laughs) okay i will it was from my weed dealer at the time i was like 15 shut up he got my number through this person somehow and calls my cell phone we start talking i don't remember his name doesn't matter i remember his aol screen name but we don't need to know we don't need to go back there anyways i went on like a few hangouts (laughs) with this older guy who was allegedly 21 which red flag number one what is a 21 year old doing calling a 15 year old somebody call chris hansen i mean seriously i promise you now if you're listening to me and you're like i'm 15 whatever i didn't you're not mature for your you're not an old soul okay they want one thing come to find out he took another one of my friends out 
and said that he was 24 and then come to come to come to find out he was really like i don't know i think much older than that probably like 30 now looking back but anyways we've already unpacked it in therapy it's fine my therapist said it's not affecting on a daily basis it's okay it's okay we'll leave it in the past but i I see how one could fall for a charming phone call what a weirdo danny arrives the evening of their date as planned and she was immediately taken aback by his appearance okay not exactly who he described on those phone calls he was short average kind of lanky brown hair acne just not at all who he said he was and we've all been catfished a time or two god knows i have and in this day of filters and photo editing out it's even easier so this date doesn't go well his personality did not make up for what he was lacking in his appearance annie had briefly mentioned to him at some point during the date about losing her mom to cancer and he started just asking a lot of very personal questions about it kind of delving too much into it and i guess he even started joking about it i don't have the full account but it made her really uncomfortable so she cuts the date short and she's like goodbye forever like that was not what I thought it would be. I'm not interested in moving forward with this. I mean, she's going through it, right? 15, you just lost your mom. You wasted time building up this anticipation for some guy who isn't who he says he is at all. And it's just an all around bummer for her. But I think she didn't really think twice of it. You know, she's got a lot of other shit to focus on. She's helping take care of her little sister. And she's, you know, pretty responsible at home by herself. Well, we're going to cut to June of 1987. Very strange, very bizarre. The sisters attempt to conjure their mom by having a seance in the basement of their Massachusetts its home. After this seance, things were never the same. We've got a whole mixed bag of things going on here from paranormal to just plain scary, but the truth is scarier than anything that I could tell you. They have this seance, right? And the seance is quickly interrupted by their father who comes home from work and he opens the door. He's like, you know, what are you guys doing? And they explain to him, we're not doing anything. Blah, blah, blah. He's like, why is the black flame candle lit? They're like, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know how that happened. But they tell him, you know, nothing, whatever. And he's just like, okay, girls, like go clean up, make dinner, whatever. One evening when Brian's at work, the daughters are home alone and there is a knock on the door. This is shortly after. Nobody's there. The strange noises continued with a random knock throughout the night, an overwhelming sensation of being watched, feeling like something was there. There was a presence in the house. After a few kind of unsettling experiences, they decide to talk to their dad about it. So he comes home from work one day and he's just not buying it at all. He tries to be sensitive considering the circumstances. He's like, listen, you know, these young girls, they just lost their mom. They're probably going through it. Maybe this is how they're acting out. But at the end of it, he just tells them, you know, it's not real. This is an old house. We live in an old house. It makes noises, creaks, etc. But the noises continued and things just seemed to get weirder and weirder. Lights would flicker on and off throughout the house. Uh, they would set something down, leave the room, come back. It would be moved. It definitely felt like something bizarre was happening here. And I think both of them at this point were just scared, but also like, is this our mom? One evening, there's another knock, and it's different this time. It's persistent. At first, they can't really hear where it's coming from. Annie and Jessica just peruse the house, hoping to get to the bottom of it. And of course, like any scary situation, the knock is coming from the fucking basement. Like, of course it is. Of course the knock is coming from the basement. They go down to investigate, which first, don't do that. 
And written on the wall in blood red letters, it says, I'm in your room. Come find me. Nope. <laughs> like what in the pretty little liars is even happening here? Imagine just going into your basement after hearing mysterious knocking and seeing that I would be out of that house so fast. They obviously freak out, run to the phone, call their dad. And now Brian is working he's like oh, gotta go home there's mysterious knocking at my house but he himself has now become convinced that something strange is definitely going on so he decides to call the cops this time because clearly something had happened the cops come right away they take a look but it turns out that it wasn't blood it was ketchup so kind of relieving right glad it's not blood but also at the same time not at all relieving because somebody still came in and wrote that on the wall brian is not convinced after the findings he chalks it back up in his own head to the girls are just going through it they're acting out and so nothing really ever comes of it but meanwhile they're in this house just like terrified i'm sure every time he left for work they were like god it seemed to quiet down for a bit now the next couple weeks after that big experience the girls are like back in their routine nothing had really happened but a few weeks later in december of 1986 the girls are watching a movie one evening when they hear a knock this ghost was back on its bullshit for sure they turn down the movie they're like did you hear something they start listening and they realize that somebody is indeed knocking on the door they make their way upstairs and on a mirror in the upstairs hallway again in bloodied ink i'm back find me can you even imagine so they run the fuck downstairs and when they're running down the stairs, they see a picture of their mom. Now, there's a lot of different accounts of what happened this evening. Apparently, there was a picture of their mom with a knife through it stuck into the wall. So the picture was being held up by the knife. This was shortly before Brian was to return home from work. So once he pulls into his driveway, he finds the girls out front with one of their next door neighbors and they're just terrified, like shaken. As he makes his way inside, the TVs and radios are blaring. He goes to turn off the TV, and that's when he notices something odd. Two glasses of champagne are sitting on the counter. Surely his girls didn't do this. And then he sees the message written on the mirror. He goes into one of the bedrooms and turns off a TV that the girls swear they didn't turn on. And then he walks into his room. You guys are just not even going to believe this. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'm leaving you on a cliffhanger. I'm doing this intentionally because I want to piss you off. We're going to take a quick break, hear from today's sponsor, and then we'll get right back to the story. Cult Leader is sponsored by BetterHelp. Cult Babes, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Are you hitting the gym, hitting the sheets for a little nap, looking at your neighbor's house on Zillow? Really though, if time was unlimited, how would you use it? How would you decide what's important enough to make time for? Unfortunately, time is not unlimited, but fortunately, therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. That's one of my biggest takeaways from therapy, figuring out where to devote time to make the rest of my life easier. I could go on forever about how much less stressful life is once I learn to prioritize my time, but why don't you see for yourself? Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash leader today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash leader. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. 
Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. All right, so like I said... He's going through the house, he goes into that one bedroom, turns off the TV, it's in one of the daughter's bedrooms, and then he makes his way to his bedroom, he opens the door, he walks into the room, and there's somebody in there, facing away from him, initially. Whoever, whatever this being is, is wearing his wife's wedding dress, and yielding a fucking hatchet, and the person turns around and their face is just covered in war paint. He runs downstairs. At this point, the police are on their way. They, they, the police arrive and he tells the police, you know, I didn't recognize the person. I don't know who this person was in my bedroom, but they were wearing my wife's wedding dress. A couple of the officers go inside and start looking around, but aside from another fucking eerie note in the mirror on one of the bedrooms that said, marry me, they didn't find anyone in there. There was no one in the house, but they know that he couldn't have left. I mean, the family was standing outside the whole time. They didn't see anyone sneak out. And so they're just kind of waiting with bated breath, like, God, we're never going to find this guy. While two officers were upstairs, another officer downstairs notices that there's this bookcase blocking a little doorway under the stairs. So they, they moves the bookcase. He spots the door, kind of opens it a little bit, realizes somebody's in there, aims the gun, is like, you know, hey, come out of there. Whoever's in there, you need to come out of there. Put your hands up, blah, blah, blah. And out of the door comes fucking Danny. Daniel LaPlante, the teenage boy that had gone on that one bad date with Annie, was living in the fucking house. And I mean living. They went inside. They looked like he had been there for months. There was things glued to the walls. There was candy wrappers, food wrappers. There was some of the girls' clothing. And I do want to say, not right now but in in the next part of the story there is some sexual assault so that's that's a sexual assault warning but it looked like he'd been there for months the andrews family was just relieved that this guy had finally been taken into custody and finally these months of horror had come to an end they take danny in they charge him and 16 year old danny is charged with a a whole list of charges just off this one incident alone he's built himself quite the rap sheet he's got breaking and entering obviously illegally being in the household and causing just terror to this family. It all comes with a lot of charges. Initially, they bring him to a psychiatric ward because they want to do a full, you know, mental evaluation. They know based off of talking to his family, he's definitely had some trauma. After he goes to the psychiatric ward, they then take him to juvie. So this is, you know, a couple weeks after he's been apprehended. The Andrews decide, like, they've already kind of been planning this, but they're headed to New Hampshire for a fresh start. They just want to move out of that house and I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near it either. Like, how do you even deal with the aftermath of something like that? Somebody living in your home, unbeknownst to you. The frogging. We talk about it so many times. And that's actually how this episode came to be. So frogging, that's P-H-R-O-G-G-I-N-G, is when somebody's living in somebody else's house. 
without the the owners or occupants of the house having any knowledge of them being there. So people living in walls, crawl spaces, attics, basements. It's happened. It's happened on many accounts, but this is definitely by far probably one of the most infamous cases of frogging out there. I was actually talking to Olivia, giving her just kind of the quick cliff notes version of the story that I'm doing today. And she was like, oh, that's like frogging, right? And I was like, yes, I, I was so such a proud moment for me. I feel like it's probably like when your kid says something for the first time, a similar euphoria. But she was like, yeah, because I remember from that auto in the attic story. And I was like, yes. And I was like, I would take an auto in the attic before a Danny in the basement any day. I remember I watched a Lifetime movie about frogging. And I, I know I told you guys about it. I think it was back in December. But I actually texted Ash and Elena from the Morbid podcast when I was watching that movie. Like, holy shit, have you guys ever done a case on frogging? And Ash was like, yeah, I actually covered Daniel LaPlante. And that's what, you know, eventually led to this episode. Moving on, in October of 1987, the court decides that Daniel should be tried as an adult for his crimes. They're like, we don't want to deal with this in juvenile court. So he now has to await being tried as an adult. And in the meantime they allow him to be released on bond. So he's released on a $10,000 bond to his mom and his stepdad. If I was his mom, I know you can keep him. But I mean, Danny did have a rough childhood. He had a childhood that was full of a lot of abuse. Apparently his own dad was super abusive verbally, possibly physically. I've seen kind of mixed accounts. The most fucked up situation is, well, Danny had a really hard time in school. He was dyslexic. He had a, he had a lot of different learning disabilities and he had a hard time paying attention. Because of all of this trouble that he was having in school, the school suggested to his parents that they have him see someone just to talk to about some of the issues that he's dealing with. And that's actually the first time he saw a psychiatrist. But that psychiatrist ended up being a complete fucking dirtbag and actually sexually assaulting Danny on multiple occasions, which just really made things worse for a kid already having a hard time. He was made fun of at school for being creepy, for his acne, things he could control, things he couldn't but obviously by by no means is that an excuse to start breaking into people's homes which is what he did this was so the andrews family this is the first time that shit really turned real and one of the theories on how he got andy's phone number originally is a theory that he potentially broke into the home beforehand and that's how he initially even got the phone number because he had a habit of doing this by the time he was 15 years old he had this whole regular routine where he would break into houses nearby and he got a thrill out of like moving things around like he would rob people sometimes but more often than not he was just going in there moving things around just to make it very apparent that somebody had been in the house so it's definitely a psychological thing happening here it's not just like oh i'm breaking in and stealing some beer from the neighbors it's very much more the vibe i want you to know that somebody is watching you and that's how he got his thrill in the short while that danny is out of the system and he's back at home with his parents i don't need to say what he's on because we all know what he's on and he's back on it. December 1st, 1987, Danny enters the home of 33-year-old Priscilla Gustafson, who is a pregnant nursery school teacher. She is home alone with her two children, seven-year-old Abigail and five-year-old William. Though the circumstances aren't clear on why he was in their house, some speculate that perhaps it was a burglary gone wrong and he was just caught in the house by her and didn't expect her to come home. Others say that perhaps this was planned, but it doesn't seem like he really had a ton of time to play 
plan things. He didn't know that he was going to be getting posted out on bail anytime soon. He probably thought he was going to be there for a while. I don't know. But he breaks into this house. Instead of walking you through what happened when he got there, I kind of would just rather walk through what the police found when they got there later that day. When they walked into the house, they found 33-year-old Priscilla Gustafson face down on her bed and her pillows were just covered in her own blood. She had been raped and then shot multiple times point blank. The children, I I know the children, we'll move fast. Seven-year-old Abigail and five-year-old William had both uh, separately been drowned to death. When officers arrived, initially they were just like, who the fuck would do that? It was the husband who would do this. But there was eerie similarities between the crime scene here and the crime scene from a few months prior at the Andrews house. There had been a drink set out almost as a prop, like the two glasses of champagne at the Andrews house. And the officers on this call had also been at the call for the Andrews house. And they know that he had just gotten out of jail. So they start piecing it together that perhaps this was Danny. In the Gustafson's house where they were murdered, they found 22 caliber casings in the bedroom that matched a gun that had been stolen by one of Danny's neighbors who had called in and reported his gun as being stolen. This is all within like a block radius. Priscilla Gustafson and her children, they lived not far from, like a stone's throw away from Danny's house. Officers pay a visit to Danny's parents' house and his mom tells him, listen, I know, I know, Danny missed a meeting with his lawyer this morning, and they're like, no, 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 that's not what we're here about. We need to talk to your son now. She calls for Danny, and in doing so, he realizes the cops are at the door. He's been watching the news. He knows everything that's going on right now. So he fucking dips. He takes out the back door and just takes off into the wooded area, and the cops lose him. I mean, this is scary, right? And immediately, first thing we have to think of, right, is the Andrews family who had been taunted and horrorized by this guy for months, and now he's out on the loose and wanted as a possible murder suspect. The Andrews family were still in the packing process when they receive a phone call that evening from the detectives letting them know that Danny is out on the loose and is a suspected murderer. And Brian can't tell his daughters. He knows they'll be too upset. He's not going to tell Annie. He's definitely not going to tell the younger one. He's like, okay, let's just we'll play it cool. But he's definitely on high alert. So are the authorities. Over the next two days, the police received dozens and dozens of tips but no sign of Danny. The community was on edge and eventually a citywide manhunt ensues. People are calling in and then there's a possible sighting of him at a lumber yard eight miles outside of Pepperell where he was living. The cops all head over there and it's like a big fucking deal. There's police helicopters, everything searching the vicinity and they spot this little shack on the property once they've kind of looked everywhere else and they're like, uh, yeah, Definitely somewhere that a person like him would be hiding out. So they pretend they're done looking and they kind of create like a rose. They're like, okay, yeah, helicopters, like you can back off. He's not here. He's not here. But they were just trying to kind of disarm him and make sure that he you know, wasn't sitting in there with a gun aimed, ready to come out. Eventually, they go up to the shed, they pop up in the door, they're like, Danny, we know you're in there, come out with your hands up, and he does. They tell him to get down on his stomach, put his hands out by his side, and they arrest him, and Danny is just manically laughing throughout the entire arrest. 
they end up finding, uh, I think, I believe the murder weapon. They found a gun down hidden near his genitals and they take him in. I can tell you there's probably no one more relieved than Brian Andrews at this point when he gets the call that Danny has actually been arrested again and is being held. Now that's one ending to the story. There's other accounts that say a a few towns over, Danny actually kidnapped a woman in her car, but she later escaped. And so this was supposedly a few days after the murders of Priscilla and her two children. They said that they found Danny hiding in a dumpster two days later. The police took him in, inspected his clothing, and it was then that they found a hair on his sock that was a match of Abigail, Priscilla's daughter. It's, It's hard to say. Either way, he ends up in jail and he gets sentenced to three life sentences for the murders of the Gustafson. More recently, and there's actual footage of this I saw on YouTube, you can watch him doing a quote-unquote apology. I think it was his final attempt to be paroled. It was on March 22nd of 2017. There was a resentencing hearing for Danny, and he asked for a reduction in his sentence. At the hearing, it was mentioned that juveniles convicted of murder should be given a meaningful opportunity to re-engage with society, and there was also this new law that allowed juveniles convicted of murder with extreme cruelty and atrocity to ask for parole after they've been behind bars for a minimum of 30 years. The judge, however, gave Danny, or I guess Daniel now, feels weird to call him Danny, the maximum penalty of 45 years because he was evaluated by a forensic psychiatrist that came back with the claims that Danny was just never remorseful for his crimes even to that day. He says like this like very standardized apology. He doesn't even look at the family. He's like looking at the judge the entire time he apologizes, but I I don't think anyone was buying it. And I truly don't think he showed any remorse. Family members of Priscilla actually spoke at this resentencing hearing in, in 2017. Priscilla's brother spoke and said, you know, I forgive you, but forgiveness is a spiritual thing. But that's a different story than paying the due for your crimes or something like that. And then Priscilla's husband and the father of her children actually ended up getting remarried later on. And his second wife came to the trial and spoke on his behalf because he passed away a few years prior to this. She was just like, you know, it wrecked him. It ruined his life. He couldn't focus at work. It was hard to have his maintain his career with the grief of somebody just killing his entire family without any rhyme or reason to do so. So I'll also say he was technically 17 years old when he committed that murder i don't know i just don't think it's a risk worth taking so seems like he's gonna he's gonna live out the rest of his years behind bars i tried to look up i couldn't really find anything on the andrews family afterwards like i don't really know what happened to them after but i would assume that that would be a a really hard thing to live with i mean they survived thank god Danny didn't attempt to murder them. Who knows? I'm sure even with him behind bars, I feel like I would want to just live in a studio apartment after that where I can see everything. It's fucking terrifying. As always, I'm going to link in the episode notes of today's episode, all my sources and everything. But there is a show and it's on ID. Okay, so this is funny. I watched its season two, episode one of Investigation Discovery's Your Worst Nightmare series. And it's called Bump in the Night. So they did an episode on it that is so good. You can watch it. I think I bought it on like Amazon Prime or something. But anyways, 
I watched that and I I had totally painted this picture in my head because of the notes that I'd written. And then I was listening. My Favorite Murder also did an episode on Danny LaPlante. Uh, Karen covered the case, who I just fucking love. But when she was telling her story, I was like getting these visuals. I was like, God, this is I can completely picture this. And then she was like, oh, by the way, I listened to (laughs) my account of this story is coming from Investigation Discovery, Your Worst Nightmare. And I was like, yes, yes. I was like, that is why it's coming together for me so nicely. So I don't know. Great minds think alike. Watch that episode because I feel like it gives you a really good visual for how everything played out and honestly with a lot of those like retelling story shows I feel like a lot of times they're so cheesy and you're kind of like whatever but this was like I was on edge watching it even though I know the story and I knew what was going to happen already I was like oh my god what's going to happen next that's it that's all I got for you guys this week until next time you know what check the basement check the attic I make sure there's nowhere in your house where somebody could secretly be living because let me tell you it doesn't end good I will see you on some other time goodbye Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Cult Leader early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin' Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin' Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, But after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.